Hello and welcome to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. My name is Derek McCush. Tea is cheap. For example, in Montreal where I live, the local supermarket sells packages of tea from a well-known multinational company for only $12, or about 8 euros. With 216 tea bags in the package, this will do me for several months. The cost of tea for consumers is really low given the volume of tea that is grown half of it produced in China by some 80 million people. But it is workers in places like South Asia that have significant problems, where there is a long history of worker exploitation dating to colonial times. Tea workers throughout South Asia suffer from widespread child labor, gender discrimination, and wage theft because they are usually low caste and poor. Throughout South Asia, workers on many plantations say that they can barely afford food let alone other expenses, while those who run the plantation say their costs have risen too much and they're not making a profit as it is. In this episode of Human Rights Magazine, Chloe Friedland discusses the challenges in tea farming with several experts. Tea is the second most globally consumed beverage next to water and has a history that goes back thousands of years to China, where legend has it that Emperor Shen Nung was drinking a cup of hot water outside on a breezy day when leaves flew into his cup, creating the first ever cup of tea. Being an avid tea drinker myself, I was fascinated by this ancient history of steeped leaves. I began to want to learn more about the tea industry as as it exists today. As someone who is particularly interested in human rights issues, I wanted to conduct an exploration into the world of tea today through this lens. I had the opportunity to speak with prominent figures in the industry from both tea companies and organizations working to promote the ethical sourcing and fair treatment of workers in the tea sector. I first had the opportunity to speak with Katie Sir, certified tea sommelier, yes, like wine, but for tea, and founder of the Monarch Tea Company in Ontario. With tea or the power of it, speaking to that is what I love is it's so universal. So there's the top main tea growing regions in the world. So China being number one, India, Sri Lanka, Kenya, um, as well as Taiwan are some of the top main growing regions, but tea is so central to so many different traditions and customs. So you know, I grew up drinking it with my grandmother who was Irish, but then there's people who like in China, they'll have their special like pu'er or specific um, oolong that they'll enjoy. Um, Japanese tea has so much beautiful customs and history. There's Tibetan, Argentine and Colombian. Um, Indian, of course, has its own complete tea culture with chai, as well as so many other beautiful teas like Darjeeling and Assam. So every part of the world often has a special little story, either they're a tea growing region, or if not, there's often tea involved in the custom of um, getting together with friends or family. So I just love that no matter where someone is from, there's often a special story behind tea that they'll connect with. But you were telling me in your email and now, so like as a tea company, what you mainly do to ensure your tea is coming from ethical places is having it um, ETP certified. Is Yeah, is that like the main certification like tea companies would look for? Yes, so it's interesting. So as a tea company, especially someone myself, such as in Canada, so you're, you can either get your tea a couple different ways. You can have kind of a wholesaler who's like, in the way they're the middleman, so they'll buy directly from the farm, so they'll have relationships with the farmers, and then they'll import the tea into like where I am, Canada, or if they're in the US or any different countries. 
Um, and the benefit of that, or at least for myself as a smaller tea company, if you have a reputable tea wholesaler that's well known in the industry, is they're able to take care of a lot of the large logistics in terms of like shipping, um, freight charges, getting it here either on usually it's coming by ship. Um, and then they're also able to have really good relationships with the farmers. Um, so that's kind of in transparency what I do. I have like a Canadian wholesaler that's really well known, um, trusted, that I'm able to purchase the tea from. And then when I was researching different wholesalers, I'm always looking for like, what is their background and how are they purchasing their tea? So I can trust like they're all ETP certified. So I know like, okay, I can buy this in, in good trust. You can also choose to buy directly from the farm. So I often get emails from different kind of tea farms from around the world saying like, hey, this is our newest tea. The downside of that as a small business is that you directly have to pay shipping and freight costs, but you also have to kind of deal with the government in terms of like importing and it could get really complicated importing um, foods such as tea into the country. So that's why for myself personally, I like to go through a wholesaler. Larger companies, like really, really big companies might have their own direct relationship with the farm or they're able to kind of import directly with farmers and um, deal with like the paperwork of bringing in food. Okay. So that's kind of why I personally choose to use a wholesaler. Other people might have a different story. Like, do you think that finding, like having tea that's ETP certified is like more of a challenge than if you were to just like, I don't like not look for the certification? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I kind of want to say yes. In a way, I almost had to research myself. Like it wasn't like right on the front of the website. Like when I was looking for wholesalers, a lot of times you actually have to go to like the FAQ section or like email them directly and be like, Hey, what standards do you have for like sustainability as well as like, um, worker welfare. And so it actually took me a while to kind of discover the ETP as well. It was just through like searching and then finding, okay, this is what I want to start looking for. Um, and I believe there needs to be more transparency in the tea industry. And that's something even as a business myself, I'm looking to do, it doesn't say anywhere on my packaging that I, that this is ETP certified. So that summarized myself that I could do to create awareness for the organization as well as get, um, customers questioning. Because in general, we're seeing in the food and beverage industry, a trend towards people wanting more transparency and understanding what goes into their product. And I also want to make sure I'm not greenwashing anything and just putting this label on for the sake of making it look, getting more people to purchase it. So actually standing behind what I'm um, Mm -hmm. saying and what tea companies are saying that they're doing. So yes, I agree there needs to be more awareness as well as more consumers kind of asking questions on where their tea is coming from. Just like we see so much of it in the coffee industry, as you mentioned, we're not seeing as many questions being asked in the tea industry. So kind of um, bringing light to those matters. My conversation with Katie allowed for me to learn about the power of tea and how foundational it can be to communities throughout the world. I completely agree that it can be a great place to start when forming connections with others. Next, I was fortunate to be able to speak with Sabita Banerjee, founder of a nonprofit called Thirst, standing for the International Roundtable for Sustainable Tea, based in the UK, whose vision is to create a sustainable and fair tea industry where, above all, farmers and workers are empowered and their rights are protected. First question is, um, what do you think are the most prominent issues facing um, tea workers in the tea industry today? Um, good question. There are so many issues facing them. 
um, but is facing not only tea workers, but also small scale tea farmers. And there are more and more of those um, coming along. In fact, it's starting to become more than the tea plantations. But these issues, um, so the kind of issues they face are um, very low wages or, or low income, uh, poor housing, um, health care issues. There's also um, a strong gender um, imbalance in the, in the tea sector in, in the sense that those um, it, women are concentrated at the sort of lowest paid roles. So it's generally women who are the who are the tea pluckers, and that's the the role that has the the least pay. And they tend not to be very well represented um, in um, some trade unions, and so it's very hard for them to get out of that situation. Plus, they have all of their unpaid domestic care work. Um, so there's a huge burden on, on women in the tea sector. Uh, but I also um, think it's important to remember that they are one part of the tea value chain. And, it, and at each level, I mean, obviously, the, the problems of a tea producer are, are not as huge as those of um, tea workers, but they also do have their problems and challenges. And so all of the issues that are kind of having this knock-on effect on the workers are coming down the value chain. So it's all part of one whole. Okay, okay, right, yeah. It seems like a very complex issue. I, I started originally writing this article because um, I found like the tea report from the business and um, human rights resource. And mm -hmm. um, it was just like, just how complex the problem was. Really mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I was wondering um, if there are kind of like historical challenges with addressing these issues or like what has Thirst done in particular to address these issues and how has the industry evolved over time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, I'll start with how the industry has evolved over time. So um, it was originally, um, you know, tea was originally grown in China and exported from China. And then the British um, got a real taste for tea. And uh, there was, you know, a, a whole involvement with the opium wars and things, which was a way for the British to get control of, of the tea supply chain. And they started planting tea and growing it in their own colonies, so in India and Sri Lanka. Um, so it was a very colonial crop. Um, and I mean, not only in the places where the tea was produced, but it also in other parts of the colony. So, um, you know, huge taxes were placed on tea being exported to America, which then led to the, the Boston Tea Party with people refusing to pay that tax. So it's very much tied up with empire. Um, and the, the interesting thing is that that model, that colonial model of a tea plantation hasn't changed very much since then. So where tea plantations do still exist, um, it's, it's still, you know, a very distinct um, difference between the managers and the workers. Um, you know, it's not a very um, equal society. And uh, tea estates um, are, um, which is another word for tea plantation, 
are, are like little kind of um, countries in their own right, which with the, the manager or the, the company owner as, you know, ruling the, the country and all of the people in it, the workers and their families, um, which <clears throat> is obviously not ideal, but also it places a huge responsibility on the, on the company. So in some countries, like in India, they are legally required to provide workers and their families, not only with housing, but also with education and healthcare. So, you know, when we were talking before about how those are some of the key issues, you can see how it's quite would be quite a struggle to provide those, as well as trying to make a profit on a product that one of the things that has changed um, in the tea industry is that the price of tea has um, either, you know, gone down or um, or remained static. Um, I mean, it, it has gone down dramatically since the 18th century. We um, There was um, the director of Oxfam was recently saying that um, in 17 something, um, a pound of tea um, would sell for the equivalent of um, 500 pounds nowadays. Whereas, now, whereas he that same day was able to go and buy a pound of tea for one pound 19. So, you know, the tea as a product has become massively devalued while the producers still have the responsibility to look after all their workers. And, and that, you know, the share of the price um, has to then be shared uh, uh, with all those people. Um, and, and the distribution of value is also very unequal. So those at the packing and, and retailing end, um, they keep much more of value. Um, but I think your other question was about um, what's being done about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's, I mean, there's, again, there are a lot of answers to that. There's a lot of really good initiatives going on around the world. Um, you know, some driven by companies, some driven by NGOs, and some driven by governments, and somewhere they're all collaborating together. So, you know, big effort was made in Malawi, for example, to try to um, to try to ensure that tea workers had a living wage. Um, but, you know, it, it, as you said, the tea industry itself is very complex. But um, it also doesn't exist in a vacuum. It, you know, it is part of a wider country. It's part of a global tea industry. So there were all sorts of complications from that. So, you know, from the Malawian government point of view, if tea workers were going to get a living wage, what does that mean for other workers in other agricultural sectors? Um, and for other tea producing companies, it, it was also, countries, I mean, it was also, um, you know, raised questions for, you know, if if the value of Malawian tea goes up, then there'll be more higher value tea in the market and that can suppress the prices globally. So it is a very complex, very interconnected issue. And <clears throat> there are also projects, um, you know, at community level. So, for example, Care International has a, a project called um, the Community Development Forums, um, where they um, they they create forums for workers, men and women, to to be able to discuss their issues and and be able to talk openly with management about them. Um, so there, there are lots of different um, initiatives like that that are that ha have been having you know good benefits and also uh, raising questions. 
Um, so to come to what First is doing, First is quite a young organisation. We've only existed since 2018, and so we've spent um, a few years, you know, building up our networks, our knowledge resources, and everything. Um, and so, and last year we started at work on this um, a human rights impact assessment of the tea sector as a whole. Um, so, and it was really, you know, partly inspired by that Malawi experience to see how even when you try to resolve issues at a countrywide level, um, it's still challenging because of all these other dynamics of the global industry. So, at first, we feel it's important to look at the tea sector as a global sector and to look at what's being done at a sector level, because if you can, uh, if if you can identify what is happening at a sector level that might be driving some of those human rights issues, then you can resolve them at a sector level. You can find solutions. You can slightly adjust the way that things are done um, to try to reduce the uh, human rights impact at the at the field level. So to do that, um, we're doing this human rights impact assessment. Um, so in, in year one, we did a literature review, kind of bringing together. Was that the report that you said you read um, yes possibly i read on like the thirst website about a blog post that was discussing the um thirst launching like a three-year program not mm. but is yeah. that what you're referring to yes that's right so this is the the first year of it was last year we did um this literature re review um so what what we were doing because a lot of the, the good work in, in the tea uh, sector in terms of looking at issues of tea workers and farmers tends to happen in just one region of India, Assam, and in Kenya. Um, and those are, you know, very important tea producing um, areas. But there are almost 60 countries in which tea is produced. Um, and although Kenya is a huge exporter of tea and Assam is a very important um, source of tea, um, there are many, many other countries and regions that have these problems. So the point of the literature review was to say, look, you know, there is a certain amount of, that you can do at a country level and at a regional level, but it's really important to acknowledge that these are global issues. Um, so um, and and so and here are all the reports over the last you know ten fifteen years that have provided evidence of that. And so now that we have that evidence that these issues exist, uh, you know across the sector, the next phase is to analyze why they're happening, what are the the root causes of those issues, what's driving them, um, not just at the local level, but throughout the value chain. So, you know, the discussion that we held a roundtable after the literature review was published, and um, which, uh, uh, you know, stakeholders from around the world uh, attended that. And they, um, you know, the, their feedback was that one of the big drivers of these issues is the fact that the, the price of tea is just too low. They're just, we are just not paying enough for tea to enable decent work and, and living wages to be paid. 
Um, so, I mean, obviously the problem is more complex than that, but you know, trying to identify things like that which are driving it. So we're going to do more analysis in this second phase. Uh, we're going to do a, a, um, a survey of tea producers to find out from their perspective um, you know, what is stopping you from being able to pay living wages? What is stopping you from being able to give the houses that your workers live in to them so that they own them um, rather than um, and so that they can repair them themselves, etc., rather than them having to always just depend on the company? Um, and so we, we hope that that survey will provide us with um, evidence of uh, how um, the purchasing practices of, of um, people who buy tea and how other issues like government policies, etc., and general you know, economic circumstances, um, how they impact on tea producers in such a way that, that either hinders or helps them to um, meet, you know, um, respect the human rights of, of their workers. Um, so that's one thing, the producer survey will be doing key informant interviews with experts in the tea sector um, and also technical experts like people who are experts on gender issues or international trade, things like that. Um, and then we will also be doing field visits to um, to visit some of those examples of where people have tried different things, the community development forums, or there's another um, initiative um, that is called Tea Swaps, where they, there is a way to provide smallholder farmers with a bit more security, a bit more long-term security um, through a sort of financial mechanism. So we want to send out um, researchers to to visit those um, projects and um, assess them, you know, document how they work, what's the idea, how is it working, who's using it, how's it going, you know, is it effective, could it be scaled up and replicated in other places. So we'll try and bring all that learning together so that the whole tea sector can see and can maybe try some of these ideas in their own areas. Um, and so then at the end of phase two, we will have not only the literature review saying here are the problems, but we'll also have the reports from these three areas saying, again, these are probably some of the things that are driving the problems. And then phase three will be organising roundtables to bring together um, stakeholders from uh, of the tea industry to say, okay, we have the evidence, we have some analysis of the root causes, what can we do about it? So that, that third phase will be all about action planning. Um, and then, um, and, and the fourth phase after, after those, uh, those plans have been put in place will be, um, about accountability. It will be going and, you know, seeing, okay, what changes have been made? Have they worked? Uh, does, do things need to be do slightly differently? So, so each of the phases is, um, is um, phase one was assessment. Phase two is analysis. Phase three is action planning and phase four is accountability. Okay. And we're just at the beginning of phase two now. Right. I really enjoyed my conversation with Banerjee as she provided some very insightful comments on the history of the tea industry and how its colonial roots have influenced the lives of tea workers today. It was great to be able to get the perspective of a prominent nonprofit working to improve the lives of tea workers globally.
Next, I had the pleasure of speaking with Kevin Gascoigne, a co-founder of Camellia Sinensis, a tea company based in Montreal who prides itself on providing the highest quality of tea while also maintaining a relationship with the tea pluckers the company works with. I would love for you to tell me a bit about yourself and your experience in the tea industry, like how long you've been in the industry and where have you traveled, things like that. Okay. Well, I started in the industry. I started buying tea in India in the late 80s um, when I was uh, backpacking in India as a, in my the end of my teenage years. I was about 19 and uh, tasted tea in Himalayas for the first time. I'd been drinking tea as a hobbyist in England during my teenage years. And uh, as you probably can hear, I come from the north of England. And so uh, we drink tea all day, all the time. Uh, I started really early in my life drinking tea. So uh, I'd sort of started fine tuning it and getting into teas from different uh, growing regions, uh, specifically India. And then I went to India in the uh, late eighties and I started buying a bit of tea. I tasted uh, fresh tea uh, in the gardens there and I was got very excited about that. And I started buying and selling it a little bit, uh, but mostly I started writing about it. Um, that's sort of what my strongest subject was at school. So uh, writing was my thing. And I, was, I managed to get some stuff published in magazines in Japan and UK and also uh, in the States. And then people started asking, well, where can we get this great tea that you're talking about? So I started buying and selling a bit more. And then in the middle of the 90s, I uh, started selling on the Internet when the internet was just new, it was sort of just happening, just starting to happen, which is hard to imagine now because it's so much part of our life. But there was a time before internet. So as it was just starting, I was one of the first people selling products online. Mm -hmm. And then I, uh, in the end of the 90s, I met these three guys that were running a kooky little tea house downtown Montreal, um, but had big ideas. And uh, we got together, we got on really well, and we started working together as a team. Uh, we had skills that uh, really complemented each other. Um, I was good at the sourcing and talking about it, but I was pretty bad when it came to office work. And uh, the other guys kind of filled the gaps and they started traveling to other countries. And we ended up with this fantastic catalog of teas that were all bought directly from the growers. Um, backed up by loads of information that we picked up as we were traveling to source uh, and meeting the growers. Uh, we're coming back with all first-hand information uh, instead of rumors or stuff we'd read in books or this, that, the other, which was most of the information that we had previous to that was where this came from, right. supposition and so on. And then we, uh, yeah, gradually we moved from uh, serving tea to having a shop and then having another shop and another shop. And our catalogue of teas that we bought directly in the gardens became the the centre of what we do. So, yeah, and then the, the company developed. We did publishing, education. Um, we moved on to doing more wholesale and the part of the company where we buy the tea, import the tea, 
distribute the tea and sell it in our shops uh, really became our focus in life. So that was really how it happened. And then in the late, in 2015, we started talking about this tea studio project, which I mentioned, which is just one of our many side projects that we do. But it was the one that uh, sort of took your attention when we were talking last time. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. That's um, that's amazing. And then did you tell me in our previous meeting that you wrote or helped write like a fair trade agreement? With- yeah, that's right. Um, I was selling tea in the, in the 90s and some of it was coming from Fair Trade Gardens. So I called Fair Trade Canada. Uh, who had been dealing mainly with coffee because that was their big thing at the beginning was right. the fair trade coffee. So I spoke to them and they said, well, we don't actually have a contract for tea. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, let's write one. Right. So we sat, I sat down with the people from uh, Fair Trade Canada at the time and we wrote the contract and I got the first uh, license for Canada. So I've really been working with the fair trade people since the beginning, as far as tea is concerned in Canada. If you could just tell me a bit about um, Camellia Census's business model, like I know that um, the company prides itself on very high quality tea, um, buying it, you know, at a high price at the source. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We uh, really, we sort of a, a combination of two things. One is uh, we really want to buy the best tea we can possibly buy. Uh, we don't like to cut corners on that. I mean, that's easy to say, but we're really, really, really serious about it. So um, apart from the super fancy stuff that costs a lot of money and has won competitions in Asia, we do do that stuff. But even when it comes down to the best uh, Chinese green tea of a certain leaf style that we can find. We'll really put a lot of effort into finding that tea. So then uh, our model is based on uh, the four of us traveling to Asia, knowing the producers, buying the, the teas, paying a really good price at the other end so that uh, the producers like us, we're respecting their product, we're respecting the work they do and the generations and of, of tradition that are behind everything that they're doing. So representing this beautiful product as far as the production and the artisanal activity is concerned. And then we bring it straight back. We don't pay any intermediaries. We don't have... Uh, people that we have to pay in between. We have, obviously, we have to pay the broker and uh, we have an agent in uh, Canada, but we're not paying like distribution companies. Okay. And then the other great, and then the great thing at the, is that we can stand in the shop and we can sell it to the customers at a really good price too, because we haven't had to pump up the price because of, you know, being such a direct source. Mm-hmm. So, even people that are coming in who are used to drinking a regular tea are getting a very high quality tea for the same money. And it means that people can fit it into their 
weekly budget uh, on a, more easily. You can fit into their grocery list uh, more easily instead of just having the super fancy stuff and it's too expensive for anybody to really have any access to it. Because we really believe that tea, that everybody should be drinking tea. It's really a drink for the people. And what are some of the biggest successes you've seen since the tea studio was created? So we've had a few uh, a few things. We've been really happy with the team. We've been really, really happy with the team that work for us. Um, I didn't mention that the team that works for us is all uh, women. Um, and they're in an area where it's tribal. And uh, women really don't have a lot of opportunities to have an adult life mm-hmm. aside from getting married very young. Right. Um, so usually... The, the girls will leave the house uh, in the end of their teenage years to be married and um, to for the dowry system, even though the dowry system is outlawed and illegal in India, um, it's still happening a bit over there. So the usually the girls will get married very, very young. Mm-hmm. So if they have a job and they're bringing in money, um they have a few more years to live with the family because they're bringing money into the family okay. so um, it gets them a, it gives them a chance to have an adult life before other parts of the the life sets in so that's been really nice but it's been really uh very rewarding to see them tuning into this artisanal activity that I was describing where they have to feel the leaf, they have to decide when it's time to move it to the next machine and so on. And they taste the teas every day. So they know what those little decisions make uh, as a difference in the process. Right. So they don't usually have this kind of um, respect given to them or this kind of opportunity to have that create uh, some form of creative process right. in their lives. So it's very exciting to see them reacting to that yeah. and having a great time doing it and so proud of the results that at the end of the day. So that's very rewarding. Yeah. And uh, we did we did see in advance this uh, idea of helping out the women in the area. We did think, oh, well, there's a situation there. We better try and, you know, we'll hire the women instead of men, which is the usual right. setup in a tea factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we hadn't really seen how great this would be, this kind of yeah. empowerment and uh, excitement with uh, having something creative and also being part of a picture that is an international picture because they know those teas going to an international venue and they often have international visitors because the tea studio has been making a lot of noise on the tea circuit so a lot of people come to visit a lot of people come to visit and make tea for the day Mm -hmm. with with the team there so you know they're getting to mix with internationals and people and they they know their products being sold abroad and so Mm -hmm. it's it's really nice for the for their setup yeah that's amazing and just the fact that now like they're really taking pride in what they're doing exactly yeah yeah and even the farmers that bring the leaf in who at the beginning tried to dupe us by filling the bag with all sorts of stuff and just putting some nice leaf at the top. Oh. And we had to send them away. 
And right. we said, no, we want this. <laughs> in fact, we had a we had a big drawing on the wall saying yeah. the type of plug that we wanted and the type okay. of plug we didn't want. Right. So we said, if you bring this, we'll give you really good money. If you bring this, we'll give you no money. <laughs> I see. So um, at first, it took a little while. Yeah. Um, but when they started bringing the good stuff, we paid them handsomely for it because it fitted into the the equation with okay. the end price and the shipping and so on and so on. And now we have uh, a few of these producers coming in, uh, opening the bag with pride and saying, check this out. You're not right. going to get leaf like this beautiful. Yeah. So that I really hadn't expected That's that to right. happen. I knew it was going to be tough to get the leaf happening, mm -hmm. but I didn't ex expect this situation where it became uh, a situation where of pride. Exactly. And they were really proud of like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get these guys the best leaf they've ever seen. Yeah, it's gonna be the top bag of leaf they've ever seen, and bringing right. it in, and you know, really proud and taking the taking the prize and saying that it's better than anybody else's. So that was never happening before. They were just stuffing bags with any old stuff because they were making low grade teas before. Yeah. So that's also super rewarding for us, and it's stuff that we didn't expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so right. that, I, that's been really, you know, that it, I would say that the big successes are a lot of the stuff that we really hadn't expected and we only noticed it once it started happening. Right, that's amazing. Yeah, I feel like it just shows like once you start, you know, giving people a certain amount of respect and fair that's it. Yeah. And things like that. I agree, I agree. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, that is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. I was very fortunate to be able to speak to Kevin Gascoigne on two different occasions, learning about how Camellia Sinensis runs their business and the tea studio project. Through my exploration of the tea industry, I have learned there is a lot of work to be done to ensure the fair treatment of tea workers and respect for their rights. However, luckily, there are a number of tea companies and organizations like the ones you heard from today who are working to create a better future for workers in the tea sector. As a tea consumer, it is imperative to support these initiatives by paying a premium for higher quality tea and educating yourself about which organizations truly care about the livelihoods and well-being of their tea producers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.